from the Gospel of John. If you'd like to turn there to John chapter 20. John's account of the first Easter Sunday, what we call Easter Sunday, beginning in verse 19. It's on page 906 in these Bibles in the pews. John chapter 20, hear God's word, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray together. Our Father, you tell us that your word is a, a lamp unto our path. We ask that you might open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the uh, first Easter Sunday morning, and earlier that morning, Mary had uh, gone to the tomb where Jesus had been buried, and she found that the massive stone at the entrance had been rolled away. She, she runs and tells Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, what she has seen. And her assumption was not that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but that someone had taken, perhaps even stolen, the body. Uh, well, Peter and John, once they hear from her, they run to the tomb and they, they find the burial clothes uh, lying there in the tomb. And they leave and they, they go uh, away. And Mary is standing there by herself outside of the tomb. And she stoops down and she looks in and there are two men who were told are angels. And they ask her, why are you weeping? And then Jesus appears to her. Uh, she goes from there back to where the disciples are and announces, I have, I have seen the Lord, and tells them what Jesus has said to her. And now several hours pass, and I began reading in, in verse 19, and it's evening. And the disciples are, are hunkered down in the upper room with the doors locked because they are frightened that the authorities might be looking for them since they had been with Jesus. They are having a very difficult time processing what has happened uh, over the past couple of days. And then in verse 19, the latter part, John says that Jesus comes to them. And a standard Jewish greeting of that day would be, as you met someone that you knew, to say, peace be upon you. 
into which the person you greeted would respond back, and upon you be peace. And so Jesus gives that greeting, and he repeats it twice. Uh, Bible scholars who study these things believe that that means that he is reminding them of what he had said to them the night of his arrest, that my peace I'll leave with you. So he says, peace with you, and then he, he shows them his hands and the, his side, and he said, I did basically what he's doing by, by showing them is saying, I, I did what I said I was going to do, <clears throat> and I have won the peace for you, and then he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to focus on Thomas just for the few minutes that we have. Thomas is not there. John tells us that Thomas was not there that first Lord's Day evening, that first Easter evening. And when the other ten disciples, we read in verse 25, when they tell him what they've seen, he makes it clear, I will not believe. I refuse to believe without some sort of concrete proof. And so he spells out how concrete he wants it. Unless I'm able to put my finger into the, to the holes in, in the nail prints in his hands and place my hand in his side where the spear pierced him, I will never believe. He doesn't say I'll have a hard time believing or I might believe. He says I'll never believe. Well, why was Thomas so firm in his refusing to believe? Well, we can only speculate. Perhaps he knew the implications for his life. If he believed, uh, Jesus had said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you also. So he perhaps saw the moral implications. Some people today choose not to believe because they see that if I follow Christ, it's going to affect my life. It's going to change some of the things I'm doing. Uh, I'll need to maybe stop doing some things I'm doing. I'll need to start doing some things I haven't been doing. And they see moral implications, and so they say, I'm not going to believe. Perhaps that was in Thomas's mind. We don't know. Perhaps he was disappointed and disillusioned with the crucifixion. He was traumatized, just like the other disciples. Imagine. We, we read the uh, crucifixion account, and yes, we, we know that that was the worst form of execution reserved for the lowest criminals in the Roman system. Uh, we know it was intended not only to take a person's life, but to thoroughly embarrass them and the people they represented. Uh, so we, we know all of that. And yet imagine, imagine if on, for our calendar on Thursday night, Jesus had been with his disciples. They had been talking as he institutes the Last Supper. They're still expecting him to set up an earthly kingdom and defeat the Romans under whose tyranny they lived. And the next day, he's beaten, he's scourged in the harshest form, and then he's crucified. A bloody, cruel death. Imagine. Imagine what they've been through. Some of you have suffered trauma. You've been violated in some way or witnessed something that, that, that you can't forget. And you may say, I, I believe there's a God, but I just... I don't know if this God can be trusted. Perhaps that was in Thomas's mind. We don't know. Perhaps it was intellectual that the very idea of a man returning from the dead was just, I can't, I can't believe that, though he himself had seen Lazarus. But the reality is, I'm trying to say, is we don't know. We just know he was unwilling to believe and he was firm that unless he could see and feel and touch, then he would, not, he would never believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. John Stott 
was the evangelical pastor basically to the world. All denominations respected and looked to John Stott, who died in 2011. John Stott was an Anglican minister at All Souls in London, and he he preached a sermon on this passage, and he, he titled it Thomas the Absentee. And he says there, and I'm just going to paraphrase some of his ideas, he said the major reason, major practical reason for Thomas's unbelief was the fact that he was not there that first Easter night. He was absent. We aren't told why. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was detained. But John Stott makes the point, Thomas missed the blessing of seeing the resurrected Christ simply because he was not in that room with the other disciples. Stott says there's a lesson here. To help us in our doubts, we should expose ourselves to God's word rather than remove ourselves from it. And today, we think that skeptics, you know, if if you're an agnostic agnostic or an atheist or, or just basically skeptical, maybe you're not hostile to the Christian faith, but today we tend to think, well, you know, church is the last place you'd find skeptics, but this should be the first place you'd find them. This is for doubters. This is for skeptical people, for half-believers, because faith does not emerge in a vacuum. Faith emerges and is cultivated within a context of community and exposure to God's Word. And that's why the Apostle Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if you are here today, if you are present, and you would see yourself as as a doubter, as a skeptic, is a person who thinks, well, maybe this is true, maybe it's not. I, I don't really know. You are welcome here. And I encourage you to come. I encourage you to expose yourself to God's Word. Thinking you must be a person with no doubts before going to church is like saying, I, well, I must be completely healthy before I can walk into a hospital. No, attend to the preaching of the Bible in the church. Okay, back to the story, verses 26 and following. A week has passed. Again, it's almost a repeat of what, almost identical to what happened a week before, but this time Thomas is there. Again, they're gathered in that room, that upper room that they, where they had been uh, basically coming and going for, for over a week. And Jesus comes and he stands among them and he gives the same greeting, peace, peace be with you. But then he speaks directly to Thomas. And he says, put your finger here, see my hands, put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. John does not tell us uh, here in the gospel whether Thomas actually did that, whether he did what he said he wanted to do, place his finger in the holes or his hand in his side. All we know that apparently Jesus being there and what Thomas saw was proof enough. And we know that because his words are, my Lord and my God. That's Thomas's response at that point. Now some say that these words spoken by Thomas are the strongest confession of faith in Jesus except expressed anywhere in the Bible. Thomas does not call him a teacher. Thomas does not refer to him as rabbi. Thomas does not call him master, does not even refer to him as messiah. He refers to him that the name, with the name that God said is his highest name, is the name I am that I am. We, we pronounce it Yahweh. The highest name that God gave himself. 
That's the name that, that Thomas uses when he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him in verse 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's somewhat of a rebuke to Thomas. What is Jesus saying? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Is Jesus talking about our Christian faith should have no evidence? No, he's saying blessed are those who have faith without sight, without seeing these very things. See, there are many ways when you study the whole area, and some of you have in philosophy, of of how can we know anything, the whole area of epistemology. Well, two simple ways. We tend to arrive at what we believe based on our experience, what we see and touch, and let's call it empirical investigation. We look and we listen and we say, well, I know this person is here. I can touch him. I can see him. I believe you are right here. I need no more proof. That's all, I, that's all I need. But the second way, or another way that we believe, and this is what comes to be the main thing in the Christian faith, is through the testimony of credible witnesses. We can't go back in time. We can't repeat what happened in that upper room. Uh, we, we can't see Jesus there, as Thomas did, saying, here, put your fingers in the, the holes in my hands from the, from the crucifixion. So we believe because of credible witnesses. For example... And this comes from R.C. Sproul, but he wrote that, he mentioned believing in George Washington. You and I may believe, hopefully do believe, that George Washington really lived, that he truly was the first president of the United States. But I've never met him. I never heard his voice. I've never seen an actual photograph of him. I just believe the historical record is reliable enough that I accept that information as conclusive evidence that I believe George Washington lived. I can't touch it. I can't feel it. I have no empirical evidence on my part to say why I believe that. It's strictly based on historical reliability. Sometimes those two come together. I mentioned this at the first service, and that is I grew up as a young child. I went to elementary school and so forth in the 1960s. And back then, the space program was a big, a big thing. If there was a, a launch of a, of a rocket with, the, like, the Gemini program and then the Apollo program, I mean, we watched it on black and white TVs in the, in the classroom. And so as a child, you were really up to date on, okay, there's a, going to be a, a launch this coming Friday. We're going, this is a big thing. We're all going to watch this. Well, in the mid-'60s, something happened that had never happened in all of history, and that is that two astronauts, two Gemini astronauts, went higher than any astronauts had gone before, 850 miles above the surface of the Earth, and they saw something no one had ever seen yet was believed in by almost everyone. That is, they looked out the window, the portal of their space capsule, and they saw the curvature of the Earth, 180 degrees. They saw that the earth was round. No one had ever seen that until that point. But had it been true? Yes. Had it been believed? Yes. Why? Because of the testimony of witnesses of those who could study these things. But no one had seen it. 
No one had the empirical evidence, such as those astronauts now could say, hey, it's true, I saw it. Now here's the question for you and for me. Was it any truer once they saw it? No. It was true before they saw it, and it was true after they saw it. It's just now they could say, I saw it, but it was true before. You say, I think I see where you're going, but what, what it, what's your point, Chip? Thomas believed now because of empirical evidence. He saw Jesus, and he said he would never believe unless that happened. Christ rebukes him for that. It's a, it's a loving rebuke. But he says, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have faith, who believe, and have not seen. And Thomas moves not only from doubt to faith, but he goes one step further. He moves to worship. When he says, my Lord and my God, and he worships Jesus there. So true faith, real belief results in action. It results in worship. History tells us, that we don't know from the scriptures, but history tells us that Thomas, as well as pretty much all the other original disciples, um, became a missionary. And his ministry primarily was in India. There is a St. Thomas Mount in India where it is believed that he was martyred in Madras, India. Well, let me draw a couple of, couple of applications here at the end. First, if you're a Christian here today, the, the ground of the, the Christian faith is the testimony of first century witnesses. We believe today not because we've seen him, but because they saw him. So the New Testament is vitally important. If we are to seek to influence others and, and lead people to faith in Christ, it's vastly important to get the person to read the Bible. I remember meeting with a, a, a man some time ago, and we, we set up, I had four Bible studies I wanted to do with him. And the, if he completed the first one, I was going to say, let's meet for the second one. If he completed the second one, I said, do you want to do the third one? If he completed the third one, I said, do you want to do the fourth one? It's basically a Bible study on how you can know God. I'd be glad to meet with you here if you want to do the same thing. We met the first time. We sat down in the restaurant where we were. He had a legal pad. He had a legal pad that he had written down all his objections to the Christian faith. Well, he'd written at least enough on the legal pad. Maybe he had more than what he wrote down. But he began to ask me these questions. And my typical answer was, well, I think I know the answer on that one. But no, I don't know the answer to that one. But before we get together again next week, if you want to get together, I'll look it up. I'll find an answer. So what about this one, Chip? What do you think about this? Well, I, I don't really know. That's a good question, but I'll try and find an answer for you when we get together. Now, each meeting was preceded by reading a chapter of the book of John. So the next week we got together, he didn't bring a legal pad. He brought one sheet of paper, and he had a few questions. Third time we got together, nothing. Fourth time we got together, he committed his life to Christ. The man was changed. Was it because of lunches with Chip Miller? Absolutely not. It was because of his exposure to God's Word. So he was reading it each week for himself. He was reading the credible testimony of, of first century witnesses. In that case, the Gospel of John. I want you also to know as a Christian how gentle Jesus is with dealing with Thomas. It stands in contrast to how Jesus responded to those who demanded a sign. Unless you perform a sign, you know, do some kind of miraculous deed, we will not believe. And Jesus said, you're, you're not going to get a sign from me. 
He knew they just had hardened hearts. But with Thomas, Thomas really wanted an answer. So he's gentle with him. We need to keep the same thing in mind. Do not impute motives as to why people bring objections to the Christian faith. Sure, some people just, it's just nothing more than an intellectual exercise. Let's argue about something. Can, can God make a rock too big? He can't move it. Duh. I've got him. Yeah. Okay. But if someone, I, pre- I, preached, I preached at another church some time ago. And I get an email after the message. I preached on miraculous healing. <laughs> I, yes, I'm Presbyterian. And uh, I preached on miraculous healing. And I got an email, a caustic email from a fellow afterwards, not directed toward me, but just toward God and the whole idea because he had a family member that's, that had some kind of disability. And this guy was brokenhearted, and he lived with it year after year. And the fact, when he referred to, his, when he referred to that person in his family, I knew this guy didn't want an argument. It took me about three days to compose an email and, and try to spell out what I understand the Bible teaching in this whole area and how we're to deal with it. As Ravi Zacharias always says, we don't answer questions, we answer a questioner. We try to find out what is behind the question. You're asking a question that's got something behind it. What is it? And that will affect how I answer or at least the tone of it. Okay, that's for the believer. If you're a doubter here today, what will it take? Let me go back to Thomas. If you put yourself in his shoes, what would it take for you to believe? I I had one guy, one time I was with a friend, and he said, I will not believe until Jesus comes and stands right in front of me face to face. And my quick-thinking friend said, that will happen, but by then it's going to be too late. But what would it take? What more is required? What is the highest method of knowing something? I would say the Word of God. That's reasonable. It's reasonable. It's not blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. The testimony of God's Word is higher than rational deduction, higher than empirical evidence, higher than historical testimony. The author of the Bible is pleased when people receive the testimony of Scripture and bow before him and say, My Lord and my God. I want to close with one story. And it relates to a son of John and Noel Piper. John Piper's books have influenced many of us. He has preached here years ago and probably no other pastor outside of pastors of this church have ministered to this congregation more than John Piper. His son Abraham, they have several sons and a daughter, and his son Abraham, during his high school and college years, was really a prodigal. And Abraham writes about this later, and I'm going to read you just a few paragraphs that Abraham Piper wrote about how God changed his heart. And here's what he says. It's worth listening to. Don't tune me out, please, right here at the end. Abraham Piper wrote, When I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop saying I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical, but really I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, who are strong believers and who raise their kids as well as any parents I've ever seen, were brokenhearted and baffled. 
I'm sure they were wondering why the child they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up now. But God was in control. One Tuesday morning before 8 a.m., I went to the library to check my email. I had a message from a girl I'd met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in the book of Romans. I went down to the Circle K, bought a 40-ounce can of Miller Highlight for $1.29. Then I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading the book of Romans. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember what it was, so I started at the beginning of the book. By the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. The best way, he goes on and says, the best way I know to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it possible for me to love Jesus. When he makes this possible and at the same time gives you a glimpse of the true wonder of Jesus, it is impossible to resist his call. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you've given us reasonable, a reasonable faith. Uh, it's not overwhelming, it's not indisputable, but it's certainly reasonable to put our trust in you, even as Thomas did, that we could say, my Lord and my God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.